Please open a Bible up to Philippians 1, uh, verses 12 through 18. It's on page 1164 in the Church Bible. Philippians 1, uh, 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is God's word. Uh, this passage begins this morning with this little phrase, I want you to know, and we can pass over that, but actually in these ancient friendship letters, that seems to be the standard formula, the stock phrase that introduces part of the letter where you tell people about your business. So the author is informing the people he's writing the letter to what's going on with him. Paul's letter is following that typical example, and yet there's really very little about Paul's external circumstances, much about his internal attitudes. This passage, indeed, is uh, actually fairly unique among Paul's letters, where we get this autobiographical glimpse into his own thoughts and feelings, his inner life. Paul faces personal suffering, a divided church, and an uncertain future, and yet he shows strength in the midst of suffering, a spirit of unity in the midst of division, hope in the midst of uncertainty. Indeed, he ends this passage with rejoicing, despite being imprisoned. Wouldn't we all like to learn Paul's secret to face adversity with confidence and hope? One of the central themes of Philippians, uh, last week we began to reflect on this, is our mindset. In chapter 2, verse 5, Paul tells the Philippians, have this mind or mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And in our passage this morning, Paul is teaching by example. Here's what it looks like to face difficult circumstances with the mindset which is ours in Christ. The uh, Bible scholar Stephen Fowle comments on this passage, if the aim of the life of discipleship is growing into ever deeper communion with the triune God and others, then we need to learn the habit of telling the story of our past and our present circumstances as set within Christ's ongoing story. We need to learn to tell our story within Christ's story. You might remember in the two towers when they're climbing up the stairs uh, into Mordor, Sam has the realization, thinking back to events hundreds of years earlier, why to think of it, we're in the same tale. It's going on. Don't the great tales never end? To which Frodo answers, no, they never end as tales, but the people in them come and go when they're part ends. 
That's the kind of perspective that Paul has and the kind of mindset he's trying to teach to the church to recognize that the great tale of Christ never ends. We're still in it. We come into the story and when our part ends, we leave. And yet the great tale of Christ never ends. This really decenters ourselves as we learn to see the movements of God's larger plan and how our own situation fits into that bigger picture. Within the great tale of God redeeming the world in Christ, Paul makes sense of his own part, what's happening to him by remembering two basic truths, that God uses bad situations for good and that God uses people with mixed motives for good. Uh, sorry, kids, I worked hard this week to try and boil these down to friendly words. The first, Paul says that God uses bad situations for good. God uses bad situations for good, and yet that could seem a little bit misleading. This isn't saying that we should let people do bad things because God might use it for good. It's not saying that we should put ourselves in the middle of bad situations because who knows, God might use it for good. It means that when people are doing bad things, we find ourselves stuck in a bad situation. Nevertheless, God is able to bring good out of it. Do you remember, kids, the story of Joseph? He winds up in prison or uh, sold into slavery in Egypt. He winds up in prison. All these bad things happen to him. And what does he say to his brothers at the end? You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. That's, that's the point I'm trying to get across here and that Paul, indeed, is trying to get across. That God uses bad situations for good. He says as much in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Well, what's happened to Paul? That's really the story of the last quarter of the book of Acts. He's falsely accused by his own people of desecrating the temple. A mob tries to put him to death. He's arrested. He's run through a number of kangaroo courts. There's plots against his life. He's shipwrecked. And ultimately, he is imprisoned under house arrest, chained up in Rome. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, all the stuff that's happened to me has really, contrary to all expectation, advanced the gospel. And this fits the larger pattern, gospel pattern, that we see so clearly in the book of Philippians. In Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 11, this key passage in the letter, we learned Christ is obedient even to the point of death, and God exalts Christ above every name. If that's the pattern of the great tale, Christ obedient to the point of death, God exalting him, then it's also the pattern for the story of individual Christ followers. We are faithfully obedient, even to the point of death, and yet Christ exalts us. God uses bad situations for good. What should we expect? Paul's arrested, and so the advance of the gospel will also be arrested. It will be stopped. But in fact, just the opposite. Paul says, my arrest, believe it or not, has advanced the gospel. How so? Three times in this passage, Paul says, it refers to his imprisonment, or literally to his chains. But as Alec Matir puts it, Paul isn't drawing attention to the chains themselves, but as it were, he's holding the chain up in front of our eyes to look through the links and see the effect of those chains first on the world and then on the church. Do you see how Paul's chains affect the world? Verse 13, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The Imperial Guard is 9,000 hand-picked soldiers, the best of the best, hardened veterans of the Roman army. They're the ancient equivalent of Navy SEALs or Army Rangers, 
and they served the emperor directly as bodyguards, spies, prison guards. Around the clock, one of these soldiers was chained to Paul. They took four-hour shifts. Someone else comes on duty, one goes off. But we know from the very end of the book of Acts that Paul was free to have visitors, even though he was under house arrest and chained up. And so these guards would have constantly been hearing Paul talk to other Christians about the gospel. You can imagine one of these guards coming off shift complaining to the other guards. For hours straight, he talked about nothing but Jesus. On and on, Jesus the Lord, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I could tell you the whole story by this point. Doesn't he talk about anything else? It really raises the question, who is actually chained to who here? Is it Paul chained to the guard or vice versa? Paul says at this point, after two years, pretty much the whole imperial guard and all the rest are others. They know that I am in prison not because of the imperial power. I am in prison for Christ, or literally in Christ. They all know I'm here in prison not because the Caesar ordered it so, but because Christ has ordered it so. I'm not here because I'm in chains, but because I'm in Christ. Paul doesn't deny the reality of his suffering. It's real. The chains would have chafed. He was dependent on the generosity of others even to eat. He doesn't say suffering is actually good. It's not. It's bad. He's not a blind optimist saying, well, things are going to turn out good in a few moments. No, what Paul sees is that his own circumstances, his own bad situation, is set within a larger story. And he recognizes the pattern of what God's doing in the world and that what has happened to him is actually advancing the gospel. It's given him the opportunity to preach the good news about Jesus to Roman tribunes and governors and soldiers and even the imperial guards. These are people that would never show up to hear Paul preach a sermon on their day off because they felt like it. And yet they have all now heard the good news preached. And so Paul can rejoice that even in dire circumstances, we're going to look at, uh, I guess, in two weeks, but coming up in the next passage, Paul recognizes that there's a strong likelihood he's going to be put to death at the end of this imprisonment. And yet, in that bad situation, he rejoices that God is using it for good. So how do we tell our story within Christ's story? How does our situation fit within what God's doing? Is it possible God is using your situation for good? I don't know the details of your individual situations or how you might be in a bad situation. For many of us, it may not be anything nearly as severe as Paul's imprisonment, but what I do know is this. God uses faithful hope in the middle of cancer and sickness as a witness to those around. God uses the patience of faithful singles as a testimony to a world that's gone crazy in their sexual ethics. God uses youth who live faithfully, even when it comes with mocking and teasing, to advance the gospel in schools. God uses parents who daily self-sacrifice, spouses who daily self-sacrifice, to form his people. Do you see how Paul's chains affect the church? Verse 14. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. There's a lot packed in here. Through Paul's own example, the church in Rome becomes confident, not in themselves or even in Paul, but in the Lord, who can use even Paul's bad situation for good. 
And so the church witnesses with power in their confidence in Christ. They witness boldly and without fear. Perhaps, uh, likely, this is being written during the rule of Nero, uh, that wicked Caesar, and perhaps the church in Rome had grown a bit timid. Let's keep quiet and just kind of fly under the radar. But now they realize, even if it comes to the worst and we're arrested for our preaching, God uses it to advance the gospel. There's no way that the Roman Empire can even stomp out the proclamation of the good news. And so indeed it is today. There's no way that principalities and powers and governments can stop the preaching of the good news. And once you realize that even though they may have authority over bodies, they have no authority over spiritual matters, there's boldness. What does the church proclaim? It's not their testimonies. There's a place for that in the church, giving thanksgiving for what God has done. But they proclaim the word, God's word. The brothers and sisters in this church preach. They teach the good news about Jesus. It's not just the overseers and deacons, but the brothers, the sisters, the saints, the members of the church all speak the word boldly without fear. And so we too should look at Paul's example and grow confident in the Lord. God still works victory in the midst of defeat. God still advances the gospel through setback. And so we boldly speak God's word without fear, confident in a God who uses even bad situations for good. But then Paul acknowledges some of those preaching boldly have imperfect motives. This is the second basic truth Paul sees here, that God can use even people with mixed motives. They have some good motives, some bad motives, mixed motives for good. God uses people with mixed motives for good. See, in verses 15 through 18, he describes the situation further. The church is bold to speak the word without fear, and yet some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Some are motivated by love, others by selfish ambition. Now, if this second group was preaching a false gospel or a false Christ, something untrue, uh, Paul would not be rejoicing. Paul writes in Galatians 1, there's some who want to distort the gospel of Christ, but even if we or an angel from heaven preaches you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached, let him be accursed. I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be cursed. Okay, that's Paul's attitude to someone who twists the gospel. Here in Philippians 1, then, these are not people twisting the gospel. They're preaching the accurate truths about Christ. He doesn't criticize that message, and yet their motives are wrong. What exactly is the situation going on in the Roman church that Paul's reporting on here? Well, we don't know. This passage is frustratingly vague in one sense, and so commentators have made a cottage industry out of suggesting different possible hypothetical situations. But Paul knows that love keeps no record of wrong, and so he doesn't commit for all times the names of those who have done wrong, had bad motives. He doesn't call them out specifically. He lovingly covers over this, and yet he tells us a little bit about it for our benefit. He writes in general terms sufficient to make the point we need to hear, that God uses bad situations for good, and this even means that God can use people with mixed motives for good. As a preacher, I know that there's a temptation to preach Christ accurately, but with motives like envy, 
rivalry and selfish ambition. It's a natural human tendency, isn't it, to compare ourselves to others. Farmers compare head of cattle and acres of corn. Builders compare houses and employees. I suppose bankers compare, you know, how much business they do in a quarter. I don't, Nate can tell you after service what bankers compare. Uh, that's natural. And pastors compare congregations. I suppose that's just human nature. Maybe not sinful in itself. But then we start to compete with others or to envy others. And when pastors envious of some other church grow their ministry and see the gospel dance, when selfish ambition, that's when it becomes a problem. That's what Paul's calling out here. And it's not just pastors at risk as if Paul's only writing to me. Don't we all like to be on the winning side? Part of a growing movement to think we're on the right side of things? The truth is sometimes people join a growing church simply because it's growing. For no other reason than that. They just want to be part of something that seems to be succeeding. Of course, like Paul, we should want to see the gospel advance. Uh, both throughout the world, the guards would hear it or our community would hear it, and in the church as people become more confident. So we should want to see the gospel advance. But like anything else, church growth becomes an idol when we treat it as a goal in itself. And so whole churches can become motivated by envy and rivalry rather than love and goodwill and the gospel. Sometimes we're a little bit blind to how much this shapes our world. We've all been born into a situation where the church is already split up in all sorts of different denominations. A world where Christ's church is broken up into a bunch of different groups. And so we just think this is just the way things are. And of course, with 2.2 or 3 billion Christians in the world, there does need to be smaller networks to organize people. That makes sense. But along with denominations and brands of Christianity, often come these sorts of motives, envy, rivalry, selfish ambition. We try to lift up what we're doing by putting down what others are doing. When churches and denominations split, and if you're older, I'm sure you've seen this yourself, there's always faithful, thoughtful people who are both conscience-bound to leave and conscience-bound to stay. But the temptation, in, and we see this in almost every split, is to, to dump on the other side. You know, we have the true gospel, so we're leaving. Those guys don't know it. Or we have the true gospel, so we're staying. Those guys are going off the other way. In Paul's case, they're apparently even mocking his imprisonment as evidence that he must be doing something wrong. If he was a really good apostle, he wouldn't be in prison like this. Something along those lines. And isn't that our natural, or perhaps I should say sinful instinct, when something goes wrong to someone else, we think, well, they must have done something bad or else that wouldn't have happened. If they were really being faithful, their business wouldn't have gone under or their, you know, their kids wouldn't have done this or whatever that is. That's our natural or sinful instinct. But when something goes wrong, shouldn't we be asking, is God using that bad situation for good? How is God working in that situation? Here again, looking at some preachers who are disparaging himself and preaching from selfish ambition and others who are preaching from love and goodwill, Paul again understands this whole situation in the light of the gospel and the bigger story of Christ redeeming the world. Although those preaching from selfish ambition are actively seeking to afflict Paul in his imprisonment, he nevertheless rejoices. He says, I'm glad about this. Whether in pretense or truth, Christ is being proclaimed. 
Paul is being betrayed by fellow Christians, and yet he brushes it off. Again, how does he do this? Because his love of the gospel is greater than his concern for himself. If you're part of a business, let's say you started a business, and your business partner runs off with your best product, and you lose a bunch of money, and your business collapses, and they succeed, how many of you would say, well, I'm glad at least the customers are getting a good product? Not very many of us. Okay, the closest I could think of is perhaps if a sibling got the family farm in a sort of underhanded way, but is farming well, you could at least say, I love that farm enough that it's being well taken care of, even though I'm really annoyed with my sibling or, or mad at myself. I could see in that sort of a situation, maybe you love the farm well enough to put the rivalry behind you. But Paul here, that's his attitude. He's saying, yeah, I'm being betrayed. But I am so passionate about the gospel that I can brush aside these insults and rejoice that Christ is proclaimed in pretense and truth. Paul recognizes that God can even use people with mixed motives for good, and so he looks for the advance of the gospel even in the midst of church division. Mixed motives mean a divided self. These preachers proclaim a selfless, self-sacrificing, self-giving Christ. And yet they do it in a, with self-centered motives, with selfish ambitions, putting themselves in the center as an act of rivalry. And so the gospel they preach, the very words they're speaking, is intention in conflict with their heart attitudes. Paul rejoices that Christ is preached, but he does not approve of their attitudes. Indeed, in, in chapter 2, verse 3, he uses the exact same words. He says, do nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Mixed motives means a divided self, and so it's an intrinsically unstable situation. It's like forcing the wrong poles of a magnet together. You can kind of hold them together, and then as soon as you let go, the magnets go apart. Eventually, either the gospel message will ultimately win out, and the preacher will be convicted of wrong motives, and they will be transformed, or they will go from preaching Christ out of selfish ambition to preaching themselves. Although God uses even people with mixed motives for good for the advance of the gospel, this sort of preacher ends up being destructive in the church. This sort of member in the church ends up being destructive. They preach faithfully, and in that we should rejoice, but envy, rivalry, selfish ambition often show up in the way people lead. And so elders and ministers and Sunday school teachers and ministry leaders who do so from envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, often end up being abusive in the way they interact with others. To use Paul's language from 1-1, they forget their call to serve with the saints and think they serve over the saints. Well, do you see how Paul responds to these mixed motives? First, note how he doesn't respond. He doesn't de compare degrees of maturity or sanctification. He doesn't say, well, I'm more holy than them, and so don't listen to them. He doesn't pull rank and play the apostle card. He doesn't say, well, I'm the apostle, so everybody else needs to submit. How dare you criticize me in prison? I'm an apostle. He doesn't say that. And it's quite interesting. There's division in the church, and some churches want to look to what they call apostolic succession and say, here's the true root of unity. And yet Paul himself, the great apostle, doesn't say, be unified in me. No, true unity comes with the true message preached. And so he agrees with and authenticates their message, even while questioning their motives. Friends, the church is always mixed. 
It's always mixed, at least in this world. There will always be differences of preference in the church. No matter how good our Sunday school and our preaching and all that stuff is, there's always going to be someone down the pew who thinks we should do something slightly different from the way you think it should be. And we can't let that become a source of rivalry. In the nature of the case, it's good that the church is always filled with people at different levels of maturity and sanctification. Okay, the church isn't only for people you know, over 60 who are mature now, and now you can come to church and behave well. It also has children who aren't always mature. And maturity is not necessarily even an issue of sanctification. It's just growing up, learning how to behave in church, that sort of thing, and it's not always easy. But we also have people always coming into the church at different points in their walk with Christ. And some are very new to that and not very sanctified at all. And you hear them cuss and smoke and drink and you know, do that sort of thing. You think, well, how can this person even be a Christian if they use language like that and uh, whatever those things are? Uh, and yet that's the nature of the church. Is people are at different stages in that walk. And so how can the church be unified in this? Keeping second things second. Remembering they're secondary to the grand truth. The great tale of redemption by Jesus' blood. Reconciliation in Christ. The saving truth of the gospel. Remembering that the big story of the world is a God who left heaven and became a servant and was obedient to the point even of death and then was exalted and is now placed above every name as the king of the universe of all creation. That's the big story of the world. And remembering how our little church fits into that is how we overcome these sorts of divisions and rivalries and envy. Friends, you might be here today, I meant to say this earlier and I forgot to, you might be here today and you're saying, how do I plug my life into that big story? I don't really know anything about Jesus. If that's who you are, you can't force it yourself. And yet the invitation is open. Christ wants to tell his story using your life as well. And it starts by acknowledging the name above every name. That Christ Jesus is Lord. That's where it starts. And then you start to make sense of your life in light of this bigger picture. Let's pray. Lord, there are some here today, perhaps, who have never acknowledged you as Lord or who have done so with their mouths but not with their lives. By your Holy Spirit right now, soften their hearts. Draw them to yourself. Give them trust in you as their Lord. Help them to see how their life fits into this great tale. Others of us, Lord, are Christians, and yet we must acknowledge that we all at times have mixed motives, and so we ask that you would be at work in our hearts, purifying our motives, that we might do things honorably for your glory and for the love of our brothers and sisters and our world. Lord, some of us are suffering perhaps quite profoundly and it's difficult to see how you are bringing this good out of this situation. And yet, Lord, let us trust you and let us seek to work with what you are doing in the midst of our situation. Let us not despair or give ourselves over to complaining, but to rejoice like Paul, that you are at work and that the gospel continues to advance. Amen.